Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this series is to highlight certain people in our congregation who have done amazing things for other people. I hope you enjoy. So our first scripture reading comes from Daniel, the first chapter, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you all noticed that I gave her all the hard names to do (laughs) for that first part. I was trying to catch TC at the first service. Unfortunately, he read it ahead of time. It would have been really good comedy hour for him (laughs) to have just read it, because a lot of times he doesn't read it before he gets up. I was kind of, but he read it ahead, so what are you going to do? All right, we're going to continue on with Daniel and what we were talking about. It's the same. It's just the next verse. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard, whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat water, eat, and, eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. This is the word of the Lord. 
So you all are probably aware, if you've been here, we're doing a sermon series called Hidden Angels. The premise behind this sermon series is that we are lifting up members of our congregation who have done amazing things for others. And each week we begin with a pre-taped interview, and that interview lays the foundation for the topic we are going to be discussing for the day. And then we'll look at it from a cultural, social, spiritual perspective and ask the question, What does God have to tell us about how we should be living differently as a result of all of this information? That's my disclaimer. You ready to look at the interview? All right, let's go. Hi, uh, I'm Jody Rowley, and I have been part of First Presbyterian Church for over 40 years. year ago, um, Alex um, established a relationship with um, the clerics at St. Viator um, to begin working with young men uh, that are referred to as asylum seekers, and um, especially um, asking for people that would be uh, willing to help with tutoring. Um, There was a lot of need for English language instruction. And in that I am an English um, a second language teacher, I thought, that's a place for me. Um, so I'd like to tell a little story about one of my students um, who is from an African country. Um, the first uh, piece of information that I think is really important to share with you um, that really stunned me is that the young man has had no formal education in his life. We are at the point right now where I am teaching him the sounds of the alphabet. A-E-I-O-U, spelling words. That's where we are. I mean, you talk about the beginning, it's the beginning. Um, I have always enjoyed the kind of the piece of teaching of affirming my students of helping them to know that, yeah, it's okay to think you can do it, because you can. One thing that I for sure want to mention um, that has impacted me is when you walk in the door at Viator House, where I go to tutor, there is a eight, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper on the wall, and it says, you are safe here. That, the first time I saw that, in my head I was just like, Really? You have to tell somebody they're safe? Have I ever in my entire life had to be told I was safe? Well, guess what? They do. And it's big. It's really big. And that impacted me greatly. Um, The courage that it takes for these young people, they're 17 years old, to make their way to a place where they know nothing. They know no language. They know no culture. But it was so bad for them where they lived that they didn't really care. And probably their bravery is one of the hugest things to me. And every time I work um, with these students, I just am, I'm overwhelmed by that. You know, you talk about being a Christian, being part of First Press, talk about God's unconditional love for us, that the door is always open. I love that. That visual for me is is big. That door and God are always there for us. 
And for people that haven't known unconditional love, and certainly there are a lot of people out there that haven't, I think we can help to extend that love to the underserved. So I want to begin by thanking Jody for uh, being willing to be interviewed for that. Um, Jody was one of the first people to really step up. When we started our relationship with Viator House, uh, she was one of the first people to step forward and say, I'd be happy to help out with that. And we have a number of people here in our congregation who do go and help out with Viator House on a regular basis. And I want to thank every person here who, who does that and puts in their time for that because that's a really important ministry that we have. I want to go to something that Jody was talking about that you probably heard when she was discussing the situation of these young men, which is that many of them are in situations where they feel that they can no longer stay where they are, and so they get up and they literally just start walking to try to find a new place to live, uh, a place that's safe. And if you ever go and talk to these young men, what you find is that the way they got here, some of them just went through the, the most crazy circumstances to get to this place. And now that they're here, they're not technically refugees. They're actually asylum seekers, which is a different designation. They're seeking asylum here in the U.S. And the clerics who are working with these young men, their goal is to help them navigate the court system so that hopefully one day they'll be able to stay here in the United States permanently. Now, the thing is, is that with these young men, while they're waiting for their trial dates, which can take years, like it can take a very long time for them to actually get to trial, the people at Viator House, they're trying to equip them with the most important tool at their disposal, knowledge, right? Would you all agree that knowledge is perhaps the best thing you can have in your arsenal when you're trying to have upward mobility? Would you agree? We got you have some yeses back here. I'm so glad that you all feel knowledge is important. How about you guys out here? Knowledge, important thing? All right, that's good. I'm glad you all feel that way. <laughs> so they need education so that they can better themselves and others. And I remember I had a conversation with a young man from Sri Lanka who was there. And I asked him, I said, you know, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you want to do? And, and I noticed that a lot of these guys, they have the high lofty goals of what they want to achieve. And he said, I want to become a plastic surgeon. I thought, oh, now in my mind, I immediately went to, that's going to be quite lucrative for you, right? Um, now, I'm glad I didn't say that out loud because I said, well, why do you want to become a plastic surgeon? And he said, well, in Sri Lanka, there was a civil war and a lot of people were disfigured from the bombs that went off over there. They were burned. And so what I want to do is I want to learn that skill so I can go back and correct and fix many of the faces and the bodies of these people. And so... Here I am, you know, the American guy, like, oh, yeah, you're in it for the money, right? No, he's in it for this humanitarian cause. He wants to really help other people. They think of their education as an investment. And I have to admit to you, for a long time, I didn't think of education as an investment. I remember the first time I ever did think of it that way. And it was when I was in my early 20s. I was already in college. And I remember a friend of mine, he had come into some money. So... What had happened was a relative of his had died, and he was the person who actually got the payout from the life insurance policy. So he wanted to talk to my father because my father's a stockbroker, and basically he wanted to invest the money. And I remember my dad sat down with him, and he looked at all of his circumstances, and he asked him a few questions before he proceeded. He said, did you graduate from high school? He said, yes, I did. He goes, did you go to college? And he said, no, I haven't done that. 
And he goes, okay, well, I could invest this money for you in the stock market if you want. But he said, I think a better use of this money would be for you to actually use it to go to college. Because ultimately, the amount of money that you're going to earn over your lifetime will be so much more compared to what I could do if I could invest this sum into the stock market for you. So I suggest you go out, you get an education, because that's going to benefit you in the long run. And I remember really being taken aback by that, because I figured my dad would just be like, whatever, take the money, throw it in the market, be done with it. But that wasn't his reaction. And that was the first time I ever really thought of education as an investment. And since that time, I've come to find that there is no better investment than the investment in one's mind. Because when you are backed into a corner, and when you are struggling, it is your mind that will often save you. And this reality is actually backed up in the scripture that we read this morning. So we read from the book of Daniel, a bunch of strange names, right, all the way through it. Let me explain to you a little bit about what's going on in the book of Daniel so you have a little bit of context. So the first six chapters of Daniel, they were written when the Jews were in exile. Now, what do I mean by that exile? What I mean is the Jews were living in Jerusalem around 600 BC, and then this big nation called Babylon came in with their soldiers and took them over and enslaved them and took them back into the nation of Babylon. Now, some of these people, they were enslaved out on the farms. They were there to bring in the harvest. Other people had to build buildings. Some people would have been placed in homes to be family slaves. But the most educated among them, they were given special favor by the king. And that's what we're seeing in, in Daniel chapter 1, is that the most educated among them, they are given this special privilege. Let's take a look at this one more time so that we can see what's happening here in the scripture. Jump forward for me. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Okay. Now, let me ask you the question. Are these Jews being brought in? Are they still slaves? Yes, they are. But their education gives them an upper hand, does it not? So in this situation... Even though they are slaves, they have the opportunity to interact with the most important people of Babylonian society. And this is not just a story. This actually would happen. When they would take you over, and when a nation would be taken over, if they knew that you were highly educated and they felt they could trust you, that's the other side of it, uh, they would actually take you in and they would bring you in to have you work with the courts because there just weren't that many people who were educated. Now this story, it became a blueprint for the Jewish people. Because from that point forward, what they would do is they focused very, very heavily on education. And they've done this for millennia. Now you all may or may not be aware that the Jews are very, very education focused among their own people. They want to make sure that their people know enough. And the reason why is because every time they were displaced, every time they got to a place and then they said, hey, you can't stay here anymore, they would leave and they would have to go to a new culture. And what they realized was knowledge was the way that you survived. Now, even if you didn't know that the Jews were people who would end up in situations where they were trying to learn all the time, you're probably aware of the stereotypes of Jewish people. Have you ever heard the stereotype? Tell me if you've heard this one, which is that Jews are really good at business. Have you heard that before? 
I'm sure you have. Okay, now, that stereotype, it persists to this day. That stereotype is literally thousands of years old. And the reason why it exists is because whatever culture the Jews went into, what would happen is that they would become very successful. And they were very successful because they would always make sure that all their people were educated. When I was at seminary, I remember I had this professor who was Jewish. She grew up Jewish. She married the son of a rabbi, so she was Jewish, right? And she ended up converting to Christianity later on in her life, which was a huge issue for her family, clearly. That was not something that they really appreciated. But at seminary, what she would do is she would give us a really big insight into kind of how the Jewish people thought. And she said one day, it really struck me, she goes, there's no such thing as a stupid Jew. Because if you were stupid, you didn't survive. Now that really stuck with me when she said that. Because she's right. If you were in that situation and you were forced to move, you had to know what you were doing. Now, Jody's student, who she's working with, I bet you this guy understands that on a very deep level. Yes, he's starting at the very beginning, but he is bound and determined to learn the English language because he wants to be successful here in American society. So, what I want to focus on for the rest of our time together this morning is what are the barriers standing in his way? What are the barriers that he's going to face in order to achieve his dreams here in America? And there are some barriers that he's going to have to overcome. In order to start this, I think we all have to acknowledge that he has bought into something that almost everybody in here, I would assume, buys into, which is that education is the path to a better life. Would you agree with me on that? Okay, I think that most people in here would say, yes, that is true. Okay, that was not always the mentality here in America. If you go back, you can find that that mentality started in 1918. Now, in 1918, that is when public education in this country became compulsory. That's when kids started to have to go to school. Why did this happen? Well, it's 1918. It's right after World War I, right? All these people are starting to come back from World War I. And what they're realizing is that a lot of people, they're not going back home to the family farms. At this point in time, two-thirds of Americans lived on family farms. They weren't going back to the family farms. They were moving to urban areas. And they were going there to do industrial jobs. But these jobs, they were different from the industrial jobs of the 1800s. They required basic competency in math and in English. So what they decided to do was they decided that they needed to make sure that everybody was educated so that the economy didn't grind to a halt. They didn't make people go to school because they said, oh, you got to go to college. They didn't care about that. What they cared about was making the economy functional. You with me so far? Okay, that's why they did it. Now, this was the beginning of what we call the knowledge-based economy. Began in 1918. We are in 2018 today, 100 years later. And today, knowledge-based jobs dominate the economic landscape. If you want upward mobility in our society, you got to have knowledge, no doubt about that. In fact, this is so much the case that today, a college degree is the equivalent of what a high school diploma was worth in 1918. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. A high school diploma in 1918 is the equivalent of going to college today. 
And this is a big reason why we see so much tension among various people groups in America right now, is because we're seeing that those who have education are leaving behind in the marketplace those who don't have education. Now, that being said, what you have to see is that when this all started off, when the knowledge-based economy got going, all of a sudden the economy started to change, started to change a lot. Now, if we go back, what we can see is that in America, we used to be a powerhouse of manufacturing. You are probably aware of this. Okay, from 1940 to 1980, we were the place to go for manufacturing in the world. And I am sure that many of your parents in here were part of that manufacturing. And if you did that, you could live a pretty good life. It was a pretty decent life that you could have. You could afford a decent house. You could afford retirement. You could get a pension. And most importantly, you could send your children to college, often for the first time. Between 1940 and 1980, there was a massive uptick in the number of first-generation college enrollees. Now, it's during this time, when all of this is happening, that America, all of a sudden, you start to see all of this upward mobility. People really start to skyrocket in their abilities. And it's for the first time that our country really gains the reputation. It's the reputation you all know today, which is that America is a place where you can come from nothing and become successful. That's when that reputation gets solidified at that point in time. And it's at that point in time that we start to see education as a way out of poverty. And for a long time, that was true. If you were poor and you were the recipient of an education, then you could literally flip the tables on your family's financial circumstances. I know many of you in here, we've had conversations about how you grew up poor and you didn't have anything and you went to school and you were able to flip around your family's circumstances and give them a good life. I know a number of you in here were that way. Now, economists, they have a fancy word for this called capitalization. Not capitalizing letters, of course, but capitalization, you know. So, you with me? Is anybody here this morning? Come on. I see you guys literally just staring at me. I know it's a little dry, but give me, give me, I'll get there, okay? Give me a minute. All right. Society's capitalization rate is the percentage of any population in or percentage of any people in our society from any class, whether it be lower, middle, upper class, who can reach their potential. All right? So economists, what they care most about, though, are people who are poor. Are they able to jump from being poor to the middle or upper class? That tells you how well your society is functioning because the more people who can go from the lower to the middle or lower to upper, that shows you where your society is. Now, from 1940 to 1980, our country had a very high capitalization rate. And this was due much in part to our education system, that if you got an education, it could lift you out of poverty. But beginning in the 1980s, that capitalization rate began to decline. And at first, it was a small decline. But then, over the preceding decades, it has dropped dramatically. And there's a lot of variables that go into this capitalization rate, but perhaps the most important variable is that education is no longer the path to financial success that it used to be. Now, 
I want to explain this to you because I just spent all this time telling you about why knowledge is so important and we're in the knowledge-based economy and then I come out and I say to you, hey, education is no longer the path to financial success that it used to be. That doesn't make sense, does it? So let me explain to you what I mean. So, the reason why it's no longer the path to financial success that it used to be is because of the way we implement education in our country today. As an American, you have a right to be educated. Is that true? All right. From kindergarten to 12th grade, state and local governments are required to provide you with an education. Now, from 1940 to 1980, the disparity between the best schools and the worst schools was very small. So if you went to a school that was really good, it wasn't that much different in quality from the schools that were really bad. So even if you went to a school that wasn't very high ranked, you were still getting a pretty decent education. But beginning in the 1980s, the disparity in quality between the best and the worst schools started to go crazy to the point where the best schools were way better than the worst schools. Now, why did this happen? This happened because all of a sudden, our education became determined by your zip code. So, in the 1980s, manufacturing has mostly left the United States. And of course, a lot of these areas that did manufacturing, they started to collapse economically. Any place you can think of that has a lot of poverty right now, they were once huge economic centers of manufacturing. South side of Chicago, great example of that. Okay, you can go with all kinds of other places, Harlem. Inner City, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Maryland, Gary, Indiana, Flint, Michigan, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where I just came from to come here. The fact is, all of these places, you go to all kinds of other places, all of these places have a lot of poverty, and the fact is they used to be major manufacturing centers in the U.S. And so when their economy collapsed, so did the educational opportunities. At the same time, in the 1980s, the cost of college began to increase. At first, it was a slow increase. But if you've sent a kid to college in the last 10 years, you know it's super expensive to send them to school to the point where if you were in the lower middle class, it is almost out of reach for you to be able to afford it unless you are willing to take on huge amounts of debt. And remember what I told you, a college education today is the equivalent of what? A high school diploma. So you need it if you're gonna even make it in this world. So this is the way education works today. It's very simple. If you are born into a family where your parents were the recipients of a good education, then more than likely you will be the recipient of a good education. However, if you were born into a family where your parents were not well educated, either due to lack of resources or to the fact that they lived in an area that had a lack of resources, then your education will reflect those circumstances. And you have to realize that if you end up at one of the worst schools in America, you don't even have the foundation that allows you to get to college more often than not. Because that's how far the disparity is. You're not even prepared. So let's say you are good in the school. Chances are really high that you can't even make it through college because you didn't have the foundation to get you there. And so what we're seeing is that there is a massive education gap between those who have resources and those who don't. All the while, knowledge is still the most important thing you need to be successful in our society. Hence the reason why today, 
it is so much harder for somebody who was poor to make it and become successful than it was 80 years ago. Which brings me back to Jody and the young man who she's tutoring. So where's he starting? He's starting prior to kindergarten, by the way, and this guy's in his 20s. So that's where he's beginning. He's at the beginning. Does he have barriers he has to overcome? Oh, yes, he does. Massive ones. But what did she say? I love this. Jody is so great. She said, I love to bring out the potential of a student. That's that capitalization rate that we were talking about. And what is her quote? I love her quote. If you believe, it's okay to believe that you can do it because you can. That right there, that is the Jewish education system, my friends, at work. Because she is out there educating this young man so that he can survive. Not so that he can just have an education, so that he can survive. Now that's Jody, that's one person. I look around this room. If we sat together and we went through every single person who has gotten a degree in here, how many, what do you think we would find? We would find that most of us in here, we have been the beneficiaries of amazing educations in this congregation. That is one of our benefits that we have here. And so I believe it is incumbent upon us as Christians to share that knowledge with those who need it. One of the things that drives me crazy is when people look at knowledge as a commodity that is to be hoarded and kept for themselves for their own personal use. I had a guy say to me, and I've never been able to forget this. This guy said this to me one time where I was talking to him about what he did. And eventually he got frustrated with me asking him questions. And he says, hey, if you want to know what I know, go to college and get a degree. Now, this is after I graduated from Princeton, so I was a little offended by that. But he says, go to college, get a degree. I didn't spend all that money and waste all that time so I could give all of my knowledge away for free. Now, I can't tell you, I disagree with that so much. I really believe that knowledge is one of the most important spiritual gifts that God has given to us. And the reason I believe that is because the more that I learn about the world, the more that enhances my understanding of the scriptures and God, the closer my connection is with God. And you want to know why I feel that way? Because I see God and knowledge as being linked together. Let me explain what I mean by that. So God is eternal, or at least that's what we believe. Do you believe God is eternal? Okay. Knowledge, by the way, is also eternal. And I believe that God comes from knowledge. Let me, let, let, or knowledge comes from God. So think about this for a second. If we were gone tomorrow, would two plus two still equal four? Absolutely it would, right? If we were gone tomorrow with the forces that govern this universe, would they still exist? Right? Even if we couldn't define them, would they still exist? Absolutely they would. Here's a little harder one. If we were still gone, would love still be one of the most important forces in the universe? I think so. Even though we aren't here, those things are still present. And so in this way, every time I gain knowledge, I feel that I'm gaining a glimpse of God. And this is why I preach the way that I do for you all. Okay, I try to tell you, with my limited understanding of the world, what I know. 
okay? Because I really believe that you deserve to know as much as possible. Because when I was at seminary, I learned a lot of things that gave me glimpses of God everywhere. And so I tell you everything I know because I feel like you deserve to know those glimpses of God as well. I believe that you deserve to know everything I have and you shouldn't have to go to seminary to learn about it. And I've often believed that the time when I should leave this place is when I have nothing else to teach you anymore. When I've come to the end of my knowledge. Because that's when you need to have somebody else come in who can take you to the next level. So what I'm trying to model for you up here is that knowledge should be free. But that is not the way it works in our society, is it? Knowledge is not free. Knowledge is a privilege that is sequestered to those who have resources. And I really believe that as Christians, we need to make sure that we are out there giving our knowledge to those who need it in order to survive. And you may not fancy yourself a teacher. You may sit there and say, Alex, I definitely don't know how to teach anybody anything. That does not matter. I hope that if you possess knowledge, that God would put it on your heart to share that knowledge with those who need it. And you can do that in so many different ways in this church. You can do what Jody's doing with the young men at the Maryville campus. Those young men are amazing. They will blow you away, I mean, just with who they are. So if you want to take some time to go tutor, work with those guys. You, they will appreciate every minute you spend with them. If you don't want to do that, you can always work with our K-5 through at family night for our Kids Connect. Those kids, a lot of those kids need people who are willing to spend time with them and show them love and knowledge. If you don't want to work with them, you can work with adults who are trying to get their GED. We have people here who are working on their GED in this congregation. And if you don't want to do that, if you have skills that you learn from your job that you could pass on, we work with Faith Community Homes. We have they have clients who need those skills so that they can find better jobs in the job market. All this to say that if you have knowledge, and I assume all of you do in here, am I right about that? that if you're willing to share that knowledge, you can transform somebody's life for the better. You can transform it in amazing ways because you can help them survive. The way that God helped the Jewish people survive was by allowing them to share knowledge with each other. They were so focused in their faith on educating their own. And the fact is, since Jesus is Jewish, I think we need to follow in his footsteps, and we need to do the same. We need to make sure that anybody who walks through our doors has access to the education they need if they cannot afford it. And with all of the power we have in this room, the horsepower we have with what's going on in our heads, we can do that. Not only will you be giving them the opportunity to have a better life, but you will also be giving them a glimpse of God. And my friends... That is one of the most amazing things that we can do for this community. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.